Welcome, everyone, to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm thrilled that you can join us today, and I'm really excited about our topic. We're going to be talking about early onset dementia. Um, but before we go there, I always just like to uh, give people a little bit of a background as to Alzheimer's Speaks, who we are, what we do, and, and why we're here. Um, bottom line, um, I'm Lori LeBay. My mom had dementia for 30 years, and that is why I started Alzheimer's Speaks. I, she taught me so many beautiful life, life lessons that I wanted to share and really empowered me to see the, the beauty and the power um, in the voice of dementia. And so my goal is really to be able to raise that um, through this platform. And so um, bottom line, Alzheimer's Speaks is more than just a radio show. We have a platform called Dementia Chats, where I interview people with um, early memory loss and they share their insights uh, we have a blog we've got a YouTube channel we've got a resource uh, uh, website as well and um, we are a company that um, just again provides multiple platforms to help shift our dementia care culture um, from what I term crisis to comfort um, around the world and I just think that that is very um, important for us to be able to to do uh, we also believe that collaboration is really the only way we're going to win this battle against dementia. And we know that that's working thanks to all of you. You see, your likes, your clicks, and your shares have gotten us um, recognized by ShareCare and Dr. Oz as the number one influencer online uh, for Alzheimer's disease. And Maria Shriver, uh, just this past year, um, recognized us as an architect of change for humanity. And again, that would have happened without each and every one of you. So um, we share those recognitions with you and we hope that you continue to share our information and our resources because our goal really is, again, to raise awareness and to join forces and share knowledge and, and really, truly um, just make us all live life better um, together. And um, we're very uh, we're very excited and proud to be able to um, to share the content and the information that we learned from our experts all around the world. Keep in mind that if you're listening, you know maybe you could be our next guest um, because if you are having any cognitive um, issues, we'd love to hear from you. Maybe you're caring for somebody um, who is having some. Um, dementia symptoms um, or has been diagnosed. You might be an author. Uh, we've had musicians. We've had movie directors. We've had Harvard Research on the show. Um, pretty much anything goes. If you have an opinion, a product, a service, or tool um, to improve our world with dementia, we want to be able to hear from you. Um, uh, let's see. Before I introduce our guest today, I just also want to do a shout out. We are doing a dementia-friendly cruise and symposium, and we are um, 
We are doing that November 11th through the 18th. And we still have a couple of slots left. So if you're interested in joining us, please do so. We are, have four um, experts who are living with dementia who will be speaking. Uh, Harry Urban, Michael Ellenbogen, Lori Shear, who is my co-host today, and Mary Reed, along with Cindy Lazinski, who is heading up a um, group in northern Colorado to be dementia-friendly, and Becky Watson, who is a music therapist. So let me go ahead and introduce our uh, our guest today. Our first guest is uh, Dr. Dan Nightingale, and he is a world-leading clinical uh, dementia specialist, both here in the U.S. and uh, in the U.K., um, he has a company um, called Dementia Therapy Specialists, and um, he provides both clinical and educational services. And we're just thrilled to have him on the show here today. So, um, Dr. Dan, um, I just, again, thank you so much for taking the time and being with us. You're right. welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, good. And we're just all going to love listening to that accent of yours, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, next, we have uh, Tracy Maxfield with us, and she is an RN, a dementia consultant, an educator, an advocate, and she has over 35 years of experience working with the dementia population, um, again, in the UK and in Canada. She also is a Purple Angel Ambassador, which I love that's close to my heart and she writes a column uh, called dementia aware and uh, there's a link on the site that'll take you to that as well tracy is also involved in both uh, local and um, uh, projects to improve senior and dementia care in the bc as well as canada so welcome tracy thank you Good. very happy to be here well, good. See, now we've got two accents that we're just going to have. Yeah, fun a Welsh today. and an English. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I, I have to introduce uh, to you, and I'm just going to briefly introduce Lori Shear, who I, I just so highly respect and honor, who is living with dementia. And I'm going to let her tell you a little bit about her diagnosis. So, Lori? Hi, I'm Lori Shear in. August of 2013, I was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and FTD, which is frontotemporal degeneration. And I live my life trying to, my husband and I try to figure out how we can live our life to the best and the fullest and not give up and keep finding ways to overcome obstacles. Wonderful. Well, thank you all for joining me here today. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm really excited about this show. And um, I'm going to ask both Dan and Tracy the same question to start. And I'm going to throw it to Dan first. But Dan, can you tell our audience if you have been personally touched um, with family or friends by dementia? Yeah, my wife's mother was diagnosed with uh, dementia a number of years ago. And we found it very, very difficult. This was in um, a place called Prescott in Arizona. And we found it very, very difficult to find the right level of support because 
she refused to go into any kind of memory care community or assisted living. Her husband was also experiencing a similar cognitive change. He was in his late 80s and she was 86. So that, you know, this, this of course, is when I'm already a clinical dementia specialist. But this, um, this was an issue for us because we couldn't find people to support them in the way that they wanted to be supported, which was at home. The in-home care company that we worked with weren't providing the level of care that they needed and that they required and requested. So what Kathleen and I did was uh, develop our own little in-home care service and trained a whole bunch of home care support workers to go in and, uh, and support them with some really good training in supporting people to live well with their cognitive change and their challenges. Um, so that's where it affected me personally. In my own family, I, I have never experienced it, but with my in-laws, that was my personal experience. Okay, great. Thank you for sharing that. Tracy, how about you? I would say that uh, my aunt, and this we're, taught, we're going way back now, so this is probably in the very early 1980s, um, and at the time, as I said, they, don't, they didn't classify anything as Alzheimer's. They would just refer to it as senile dementia. Um, when I think back of how she presented and the types of behavior she had, it was quite obvious that she had an Alzheimer's dementia with frontal lobe component because she was very agitated and aggressive. Unfortunately, back in those days, um, once you showed those types of emotional expressions, they would automatically take you off to the nearest. It was mm -hmm. mental institution at first until you stabilized and then they would transfer you to a nursing home. And so I was around 15 when this happened and I was actually very, very distressed to see her literally, I mean, she went under certification and it was the white coat coming to the door mm -hmm. and taking her away. She was living with my grandmother and it was extremely upsetting to see that because I had always gotten on so well with her and she never expressed any behavioral issues when I was there. And so it was, it was quite distressing to see that happen. And even at that age, because I'd always wanted to be a nurse since I was two years old, I thought there has to be a different way of doing this. Mm -hmm. And so, as I said, at that time, wasn't really involved with anything else to do with dementia until I turned 19 and then took a year off to volunteer with various organizations to get a good grounding in dementia, elderly care, uh, pediatric care before I started my nursing training. Um, okay. No family members recently that I'm aware of, but certainly many of my girlfriends and male friends who have had family members directly affected, usually it's parents or an aunt or uncle. 
Okay, great. Well, thank you both for, for sharing. Appreciate that. It just helps our audience know where you're coming from. Um, I am going to throw the first question, uh, Tracy, back to you. Um, and I want to know why you're so passionate about dementia, especially young onset dementia. And if you can t- tell us to um, if there's a, a difference between you know, young onsets, um, there's so many different phrases out there right now versus um, early, um, early dementia um, and, and why our phraseology is important. So, yes, uh, as I've explained earlier, I mean, initially my passion was awakened, I would say, at age 15, seeing my aunt having to be taken to... Um, an alternate living arrangement because of her dementia. Uh, And then at age 19, when I started working at the adult day program and in people's homes, um, that continued throughout my nursing career. Um, Just everyone always classified it as something that you would automatically get when you were old. And once you had it, really there was nothing we could do. And, we could talk about you in front of you, over you, and we could ignore the fact that you had any thoughts or feelings. And I always completely disagreed with that because I always saw the the inner person. Um, I always spoke to them on their level. I never um, tried to bring them back to their reality, to present-day reality. Wherever they were existing at that time, I accompanied them on that journey. People used to think there was something wrong with me, but I I persevered. Um, When I came to Canada, I noticed that Canada was actually a little way behind the advances in dementia care compared to England. And so I continued my work in the past, I would say, 15 years. Um, I've worked within the nursing home, community care, and hospital environments, and obviously with our aging population, have met lots and lots of uh, people with various degrees of dementia. But what surprised me the most was how many were coming in under the age of 55. And some of it was the genetic early onset Alzheimer's, but there were many that had Um, a temporal frontal lobe component or an alcohol-related dementia. And visiting with the families, there was an awareness that we really did not have the supports and services and the education because it is very, very different to the type of dementia care you would provide to, say, somebody that was in their 70s or 80s. And so with regard to the confusion with early and young onset, originally um, they used to refer to early onset dementia as before the age of 65. And then if you had dementia before the age of 45, they would use the word young onset. Now they've decided that they can use it interchangeably. So young onset or early onset now refers to any person under the age of 65 who has developed some form of dementia. And as Dr. Nightingale will agree, 
we have we have children um, as young as one to four years old, older, that have developed a very rare form of dementia, but certainly we're seeing, I would say, every generation from new, from babies, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, having some type of dementia. And as you can appreciate, these are physically well, healthy individuals. Most of them have families, they have children. Um, lots of them are looking after elderly parents. And it's a completely different way of caring for them because it is so complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. Um, Dr. Dan, I, I want to ask you about, you know, your passion for dementia, because it, it started before your in-laws. Um, you were into this, um, you know, dove deep into this uh, prior to just a couple of years ago. Um, if you can talk to us about your passion and then how you look at the kind of young onset versus, you know, their, their early onsets um, in all the different terms. I, I just personally find them very confusing um, when the doctors are using and the clinicians are using different terms for people to really know what's what, because it, it seems to almost be like moving parts to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> one of the uh, one of the difficulties at the moment is inaccurate information. Many many people misunderstand that term dementia. So, in in terms of a clinical diagnosis, we're trying we've we've removed that mm -hmm. term dementia from a diagnosis and replaced it with a neurocognitive disorder. So a neurocognitive disorder with the Alzheimer's type or neurocognitive disorder of the vascular dementia type. But I, I guess I'll come to that in a minute. Um, the first part of your question was about my passion for this area. And it started back in around about 1992 when I was working in forensic mental health and forensic learning disability services back in the UK. And that's a really sexy area of mental health uh, working in that you know in the forensics everybody wants to work in forensics it's mm -hmm. brilliant it's fantastic it's a great field to work in and I was happy working in that but I was sent to cover for six months for somebody who was on maternity leave in elderly care and one of the first things I did was went to visit some uh, some patients we'll just use that word for now patients because that's what I was sent to, uh, to visit in 1992 in a nursing home in Keithley, which is in North Yorkshire. Mm -hmm. And when I got there and I looked around and I saw the environment and I saw the way that people were not being cared for, not being cared for, I, I thought to myself, well, Dan, you don't know anything about dementia, that this doesn't look right. This stinks. You see, everything was white and all the people were in this centrifugal position in a room in tippy-back chairs. It was 11 o'clock in the morning. Most of them were asleep, heavily sedated, drooling, no interaction, no intervention, not being acknowledged. They were totally, completely and utterly invisible to the nursing staff on that 
particular ward at that time. And that that just jumped out at me as being, this is wrong. This this is not right at all. <clears throat> and I continued um, going to other areas and places. Excuse me a minute. <clears throat> I continued going to um, other places and areas and seeing exactly the same thing. So when my six months was up, I had a choice. I was given this choice of, you know what, you can go back to forensic now. Or, if you prefer, you can stay in this field. And so I thought, yeah, I'm staying because it has to change. And the only way to make a change is to be inside the system. You can't change it from outside the system. So that is what fuels my passion for changing the way that we support people to live well with their cognitive change. And so from then I, I went on and I retrained and I became the UK's first um, dementia specialist working in independent care sector. And uh, we also started to look at why are we giving all these people so much medication that they don't need? Mm -hmm. And it was basically so that we could manage them. So it was chemical kosh. And um, I wanted to change that. And so I retrained again and took a four-year program in hypnopsychotherapy where I did research using hypnosis to treat some of the uh, symptoms caused by Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, Lewy body dementia. And uh, we had some real good results and outcomes from it. So that work was published in Europe. It was published in the US. We did a longitudinal study, found some even more interesting results. And uh, and so my you know my idea there was to develop a model where we can use psychosocial intervention in place of medication. And uh, and so we started to train clinicians around the world to use that approach and that technique and that intervention. So my, my motivation has all been involved in change and transition and changing the way that we understand cognitive change, the way that we understand the challenges, the everyday challenges that people are living with. And, you know, more and more research today is telling us that, you know what, we've been using this clinical phrase of, behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia and saying this is because of the dementia, this behavior is because of the dementia. And now we realize, you know what, that's not the case at all. It's our response and our reaction and the way that we do things that fuel those symptoms. So what I've realized is that two things, fear and anxiety, are the two things that people living with any kind of cognitive change experience constantly. That is a constant with everyone living with cognitive change, fear, anxiety. And it's those two things that we have to work with. So that's what kind of gives me passion and that's what drives me in terms of supporting people to live well. Okay. The other, the other part of your question relating to terminology and and that kind of stuff it's just really like as tracy said you know if you are under the age of 65 
clinically, we regard that as young onset dementia. From a clinical standpoint, if you've got early dementia, early Alzheimer's disease, early whatever, then that means you're in the very early stages of it. So your cognitive challenges, your cognitive change might be around memory, might be around disorientation, might be around behavioural changes, personality changes, depending on the type of uh, neurocognitive disorder you've, you've got. So, so that it's just really clear, it's, if you're under 65, it's young onset. If you're in the very, very... If you're in the very early stages of whatever cognitive disorder you have, then you're in the early stages. I think that's a, a good way of clarifying that. Okay. Uh, uh, I'm going to throw a question out to Lori. Um, Lori, how do you see these terminologies used? Do you think that they're good now? Or I, I know so many have had their diagnosis changed. And the terms seem to be a frustration point to so many out there. <coughs> Pardon me. The definitions are very nice to, to have, but from doctor to doctor, they do not define EOD and IOD as the same thing. I have been to uh, five different doctors and whereas one will call it early onset, another one will call it young onset. I was diagnosed at 55, at five, five, 55. Um, and they will, one doctor to the next does not call it the same. One doctor to the next does not give you the same input. Uh, you have a doctor that says, basically, go home and die. <laughs> get your affairs in order and die. And you have another doctor that says, well, do the best you can. And, but in, in all of the neuro neurologists I have been to, I've never had any that have the same definition of what those things are. Mm -hmm. What about, um, Dr. Dan? what about uh, mild cognitive impairment? Because I think a lot of people mm -hmm. look at mild cognitive impairment as um, early onset. And again, it's, it's just another, another term out there. And a lot of times the public doesn't use the medical terms. Yeah, I mean, if you've got MCI, Whilst the majority of people who have a mild cognitive impairment do go on to develop a type of neurocognitive disorder, not everybody does. So mild cognitive impairment is now seen as the very, very, very early stages of a neurocognitive disorder. I think what we're trying to do, we're going through this transition, you know, clinically, we're going through a process of change. So the new DSM-5 has introduced all this new terminology and diagnostic codes. And the, the, one of the main reasons for this is to remove a lot of the stigma that's around and having a neurocognitive disorder. And it's also about making sure that everybody's on the same page. So we are beginning to use the right uh, terminology and that we're all beginning to use the same phraseology it's going to be a long, long time before 
everybody is on that same page because that's the nature of, of managing change and managing through change. So I think what we have to do, we, I think we all have a responsibility to start thinking in terms of positive language and positive terminology and, and not getting too bogged down in MCI and early onset and all this kind of stuff. I think we need to be thinking about supporting people through their journey because the journey is unique for every single person. Laurie's journey is unique to her and she's on her journey and the people that are supporting her family and other people are sharing her journey. And I think it's, it's important for us to get the message across that positive language and terminology has a massive impact on the way that people live their life with a neurocognitive disorder. So terms like, you know, I, I, saw, I saw it again yesterday in an article, these people are suffering from, no, 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 no. If you tell somebody they're going to suffer, they're going to suffer. It's about living well with, we, you know, people don't suffer from, they don't wander, they're walking for a reason. There's a reason why people are walking around and looking for something. It's trying to, trying to get people to adopt positive language, just like they would in any other area of life. We try to use positive thoughts, positive affirmations. We, we try to think positively about all kinds of aspects of our life. And it's no different when we're supporting people to live well with a neurocognitive disorder. I think that's just as important to make sure we're using the right positive language and terminology. Let the medics sort their stuff out. You know, they, That's their responsibility to sort out what language and terminology they're using in terms of clinical diagnosis and codes and standards and things. I think, um, in general, it's about supporting somebody to live well with dementia and focusing on all the positives, focusing on all the things that Laurie can do and enjoy doing, like running two acres to close a gate to stop the dogs from getting out <laughs> and the deer from coming in. You know, it's all about, yeah, Laurie can do that because she's just done it. Um, so it's, it's really about focusing on those positive, yeah. positive things. One other thing I just want to mention in terms of, of terminology, since we're kind of going to this neurocognitive disorder um, terminology, we have so much going on with dementia-friendly communities and dementia-friendly that. Um, what are your thoughts about those terms? Because I know that you know some people like the word dementia, some people don't like the word dementia. Um, overall, from you know what I've heard is more people are comfortable with dementia and they don't they don't go down that road of being demented, um, but they see it as kind of grouping all the different types of neurocognitive disorders together um, is, is what I'm hearing the public saying more, but what, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? Yeah, same thing, Laurie. I think it's important that we recognize that. And that word dementia has been around for many, many, many years. And that word's going to be around for quite some time. Um, I, just, just clinically, from a clinical point of view, it, it's important that we identify the neurocognitive element of it from a clinical point of view. In mainstream society and in the general populace, dementia-friendly is, is fine because people have adopted that and they don't have an issue with it. Um, 
I, I just taught a bunch of dentists in New York um, in my program, and they are now, they have a, a certificate now saying that they are a dementia-friendly dental practice. Mm-hmm. So, and they're happy with that, and their um, dental patients who are living with dementia are happy with that. So, so to people, the mainstream populace, I think dementia is going to, the word dementia is going to be around for, for quite some time. Um, we're, we're seeing lots of things like, you know, I, I try to use that cognitive change because I think for me, seeing everybody on their unique journey has a different level of cognitive change. And a mm-hmm. cognitive change to them is, is, is you know, I, I'm, I'm totally dysgraphic. I, I can go to somewhere 10 times and still on occasion, not recognize it. And I always have to use satellite navigation to get myself there. So for me, that would not be an element of having dementia if I go through that assessment process, because Mm -hmm. that's part of me. So I don't have that cognitive change because I'm always lost. I have no idea where (laughs) I am, ever. So, you know, (laughs) Um, whereas other people who have got a fantastic sense of direction that may well be part of their cognitive change as they go along their journey. So, you know, everybody's unique, it's individual, and but I, I do agree with you about the dementia aspect of it in mainstream society. It's uh, it's going to be a, a word that's around for a long time because we all know what it is. We're all, we all know the word. We don't know what it is, but we all know the word. We're yep. familiar with that word. Yeah. Yep. But don't you think that we need to, the word is going to be around but we need to change people's understanding of the word that Mm -hmm. people with dementia can actually flourish in society if we give them the opportunity. They have gifts, they have strengths, they have experience, vast experience. And if we, I mean, the new wording is enable and empower them and encourage them to be parts of the community, an inclusive community, then people will not be so scared by dementia because there is still that old way of thinking that, okay, they can't do anything. Um, We're going to put this food in front of them and they're going to eat it because they can't make that choice. Well, actually, yes, they can if we allow them time and we encourage and support them. And I think we need to change how people think of what the word dementia is. And I, that probably will help reduce the stigma that that very mention of the word creates. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, I think if I can just um, jump in there and, and kind of use the word uh, learning disabilities, intellectual disabilities, as an example, uh, how we went through that process of of recognizing people with a learning disability and somebody who may have an autistic disorder and somebody who may have Down syndrome have still got so much that they can do, so much to offer, so many skills, so many abilities, so many things that they can accomplish, exactly, exactly as Tracy um, explained, uh, absolutely spot on. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I agree too. Um, Tracy, you know, there's different types of dementia in uh, older people. And is this the same, you know, for young onset dementia? Are you seeing different sets or are they similar types with, you know, vascular and frontal temporal and, and so forth? Can you give us uh, some ideas of that? So, the most common type of young onset dementia remains Alzheimer's, the familiar Alzheimer's disease. And they estimate that probably about 30% of people have that type of dementia. Vascular dementia is actually increasing. Um, and it's usually due to um, previous brain injuries. So maybe if they've had brain hemorrhage, um, and sustain some damage that way. There are some people that have had um, early onset strokes, and Cadacil um, is another factor that contributes to vascular dementia. But what they're finding is that vascular dementia is starting to increase because people have lived high-risk lifestyles. So if you smoke, and let's say you're obese, and you've got diabetes, and you have high cholesterol, chances are you're going to be vascular compromised um, at a very early age. And so by the time they hit their mid to late 40s, they're actually starting to show signs of a very dominant vascular dementia. The third is usually frontotemporal dementia, and that can actually be along with an Alzheimer's, but it can also stand alone. And that's also... Chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, um, that's been in the news quite a lot lately because of all the NFL football players that uh, they've been testing. But it's also been found in all kinds of contact sports all around the world. And I think we're going to see more chronic traumatic encephalopathy in the younger onset, not so much in the older generation. Um, Lewy body dementia, very common in the older generation, not so much in the younger generation, maybe about 10%. But what we're finding in the younger onset is that people with a learning disability um, have a very high likelihood of developing early onset Alzheimer's disease. One in 10 with a learning disability, research indicates um, will develop early onset Alzheimer's. Plus, people with Down syndrome, obviously with good health care, they're living longer, but they have a very, very high chance of developing young onset Alzheimer's. So, for example, um, they have a 1 in 50 chance of developing symptoms of Alzheimer's at age 30 to 39. Ages 40 to 49, that goes to 1 in 10. And when they're in their early 50s, it increases to one in three will develop symptoms of Alzheimer's. So we, younger onset dementia, not only do we have people with learning disabilities, but we also have people with Down syndrome. And then we have people that have a vascular or a frontotemporal or an alcohol-related dementia. And it's very much a mixed bag. And that's what makes it very complex and also challenging because of the very different care needs and education to help support these individuals. 
So in, in terms of their needs, um, you know, they, I would imagine that they, they do need a different type of service. Can you give us an idea of, of what types of services they would need that maybe they're not getting right now or that are there on a limited basis? Well, usually um, the challenge, I mean, you usually find a young onset dementia person is usually employed. So they're working and they will work for as long as they can. As the disease progresses, I think the challenges are that any kind of day program or memory center really hasn't adapted itself to include people with young onset dementia. In fact, most of the nursing homes are not able to really meet the needs of the person with young onset dementia. Playing black and white movies from the 1940s and songs from around the war are great for the older generation, but it's, been, it's meaningless to that person who may be in his 40s and actually wants to go in and maybe listen to the Rolling Stones and watch movies from the 1960s, which is more his reality. And I think that's the part, that's the part where we haven't actually caught up yet. Also, if they have young children, they have to be involved in this plan of care and they want to interact and play with their children. So we almost need to look at creating family rooms in these nursing homes so we could still have the person with young onset dementia lead a very fulfilled life with his partner and his children. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a really interesting concept, and I, but I also think that it applies to all ages and stages. You know, I think everybody needs their um, privacy um, and, and space that's conducive to engage. Um, and, and so as important as I see it for the young onset, I, I see that, you know, my mom was in the nursing home for 14 years older, but you know, everything either had to be in her room or it had to be in public in, you know, with everyone else. And, and there, there really wasn't, um, any, any other option for that. And that would have been nice, I think, for, for them. I I think to me, it seems like part of the whole model of care that needs to shift is, is getting people to understand that these are people, you know, full and whole, and, and they still have rights, they still have um, great abilities um, to engage. And, you know, we have to, we have to look at them differently, we have to change and shift those perceptions, which I think, um, I think there's been a huge um, shift in perceptions now that we're hearing and seeing more voices of those with dementia. But we still have a long, long ways to go. You know, that didn't, they didn't get that perception overnight. We're not going to change it overnight. Um, Dan, I'd like to throw a question to you in terms of um, what type of model care do you feel is appropriate for young onset dementia and, and why? Okay, well, I think this picks up on what Tracy has just said about um, how we support somebody who does have young onset dementia. Their needs are so different. And as you've just said, Laurie, everybody is individual. So Mm -hmm. we all have our own individual needs. 
whatever age we are, we might be 96 or we might be 26. We're still individuals, we've still got our own, you know, the way we think, our life experience and, and all that kind of stuff. So with people who are younger, their life experience isn't as vast, isn't as wide, and they haven't had as much opportunity to experience life like a, an older person has. If, if you're 65, 70, 75, 80, you've kind of developed an awful lot of defense mechanisms. You've developed a lot of coping skills, a lot of coping strategies. You've been through life. You may have been through wars. You've brought up kids. You've been employed. You've achieved this. You've achieved that. You've succeeded or, or not succeeded. Younger people have still got those experiences to go through. So being diagnosed with uh, young onset dementia means this is going to be a bit more of a challenge. It's going to be a little bit more difficult. I've still got dreams. I've still got aspirations. I can still self-actualize, but it's going to be a little bit more different. I'm going to need different kind of support. I'm going to need, you know, the, the different direction in life. So uh, Tracy was talking about people with um, with Down syndrome. And yeah, unfortunately, people with Down syndrome have no escape because, you know, they have an extra chromosome on 21 and the beta amyloid protein found in Alzheimer's disease is on chromosome 21. It's on a few other chromosomes, but it's in abundance on 21. So people with Down syndrome, no escape. And, and the majority of those guys are going to be younger. So they need yet a different uh, level of approach and level of support and, and a different model. But basically, what we need to look at for everyone who has young onset dementia is a psychosocial model that takes into consideration life experience and their particular situation. So with a psychosocial model like that, where you can have different people with different needs and different life experiences, they still can all follow this this same constant model it's consistent in its approach and in, it, in its application so you think you're talking about things like maintaining meaningful occupation let's just pull that out of the, the, my psychosocial model for, for younger people maintaining a meaningful occupation you may well be at school because if, if you one of these unfortunate one in 150,000 children who has been diagnosed with Neiman Picks type C dementia, which is very, you know, presents in a very similar way to Alzheimer's disease when the person is around the age of 10, then their, their, their meaningful occupation is going to be different to somebody who's 34. Their um, meaningful occupation is going to, they may already have a job. They may be working, they might be um, contributing to the economy. So they're, they're different. However, what is the same, whether you're 10 or 36 or 112, is that maintaining a meaningful occupation is, is crucial to who you are and to what you do. Many of us, or the majority of us, are defined by who we are, by what we do. And there are two main things that we have in life. One is our job, our role, our occupation, whether it's doctor, nurse, radio show host, um, farmer, whatever our role is, mum, dad, husband, lover, well, we've all got a role. Um, and maintaining that 
is absolutely crucial to our sense of well-being and our sense of purpose. So it's more about having that psychosocial model of support to support that person to get through their journey. And there's, there's a number of um, elements, a number of components that make that model work, that it works for every single person with young onset dementia. A different psychosocial model would be used for people over the age of 65. They would also have a constant model which would fit into everybody's life. So that's, um, that's a tool, you know, that's a tool that people need. That's a model, that's a tool that people need in order to ensure that they have a good quality of life, that their journey is as interesting and as exciting as everybody else's journey. And there's no reason why we have to start looking at people's problems and people's needs. We need to focus on people's positives, people's skills, people's abilities, people's aspirations, people's dreams and goals. I think we're probably all familiar with uh, Maslow's hierarchy of need, where Maslow talks about self-actualization being at the top of that, that triangle, the top of his pyramid. Once we reach that pyramid, we've actually self-actualized. Well, I think I would rather look at it in the terms of, you know what, you can self-actualize as many times as you want. People might have this ambition of jumping out of an airplane. God knows why, but some people do. And um, once they've done that, they touch the ground and it's like, my goodness, I've just self-actualized. <laughs> and that's just one occasion when they self-actualize. You know, so people have grandchildren. They love it. They've, they've self-actualized because they've got the grandchildren. You know, so there's many, many aspects of our life where we achieve self-actualization. And when you've got young onset dementia with all those different challenges that Tracy highlighted, where, you know, you, you may still be at work, you've still got children to look after, you've got a mortgage, you, you, you want to get these kids through college, and you've got all the kind of things that, that all younger people or most younger people have, but you've got this additional challenge now of having some kind of cognitive issue, cognitive change. And so um, a psychosocial model will help you get through that and, um, and it just continue to achieve just like everyone else can achieve, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Can you, I think for some people in our audience, they might not understand psychosocial and exactly, okay. can you give some examples of what you mean by that? Yeah, basically, when we talk about a psychosocial model, we're, we're supporting the person's um, non-medical needs. So we're not using medicine. We're not using clinical stuff. We're using things like, okay, how, how can you maintain your community involvement? You just met, because I, I know about uh, when your mum was in, a nursing home it's like okay my mum needs to maintain some some presence in the community how do we do that well whatever it is that you did to support your mum to maintain her life in the community is basically a psychosocial approach um, maintaining somebody to keep their meaningful occupation is a psychosocial approach so it's, it's, it's the tools that you use, basically. It's the tools that you use to ensure that people continue to live their life without relying on medication, without relying on 
an antipsychotic drug to uh, to manage my behaviour. Um, we use uh, the psychosocial approach. If, if people out there may well be familiar with Tom Kitwood, who was the forefather of person-centred care. So the, that big phrase that we use in all around the world, person-centred care, what is it? Well, person-centred care is all about you, putting you in the centre and making you the important person and supporting you to live your life. And that's basically what, what we mean by a psychosocial model. So living your life within the normal patterns of behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, before, before I got cognitive issues, my kids would come home from school at 3.30 and I would be ready for them. I would have sandwiches ready for them, all this kind of stuff. Um, we, I might be ready to take them to dance class or to football or wherever it is that the kids have to be at this particular time. But now this is an issue for me. This is a challenge for me. So how, how do we support that person to actually continue to do that? And it's using the tools that you might need from a psychosocial point of view. That's, uh, does that make sense? Um, yeah, I, it, you know, you mentioned the word um, person-centered care, and I'm just going to throw something out because um, is, as much as it is used around the world, I, mm-hmm. I think that too is, a, to me, a term that needs to change because it says mm-hmm. I'm still doing something for you. And I think until we change that mentality and get people back into relationship, um, this really isn't going to grab hold because to me it's about – it's about relationships. So if it's person-centered engagement or person-centered relationships to really get people to know this is a two-way street. When you give, you get. And, and that's never, ever going to change. You know, uh, it may change what you get and, and what you give, but it, it is a give-and-take relationship. And, and to me, that's one of the biggest needs that I think people need to understand when it comes to being person-centered that this isn't a one-sided thing, you know. Um, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with what you're saying there, Laurie. And as Tracy knows, you know, our, our young onset psychosocial model, one of the components that we've spent a lot of time talking about, focusing on and developing as part of that model is, a platonic, is platonic and intimate relationships. Mm-hmm. So relationships are key to everything. And, and I agree with you about the personal sensitive care as well, because it's something that people want to hear. It's a buzz phrase. Yep. Not everybody understands what it means. Yep. You know, and, and, I, and you're absolutely right. And relationships at any age, it doesn't matter what age you are, relationships, be intimate or not. I, I read an article that Tracy published yesterday She'd written about relationships, about comfort, about closeness, about love and belongingness, about the need to be held and the need to feel wanted and loved. Absolutely crucial. And no matter what age you are, that is important. When it comes to supporting somebody who is younger, that the, the intimate side of things might become more relevant. Um, so relationships, very, very, very crucial. Absolutely key. And um, I really appreciate that you pointed that out, Laurie. That's, that's excellent. Great. Laurie, do you have a comment or question? Um, 
Yeah, I I was diagnosed at 55. Um, my previous experience had been I uh, was at a bank for 18 years where I started their telephone and web center as vice president of bank. Um, and yet one of the first things that I have lost is my ability to do math. Um, so I can no longer write up sales contracts, do a checkbook. Um, and yet trying to figure out where my life is going to fit in and how to work when I can no longer drive or think to, to do the things that I did. Um, it was very interruptive. And what what avenues do you have for someone who has lost their main ability? I also mentor someone who had a doctorate in math and now can no longer do math. How do you uh, how do you fit that into your your um, person centered care when they have lost the main focal point of what they were? Okay, well for me. It's about utilizing what it is that you've got. What are your strengths? What are your core abilities? What is it that you are still able to do? What is it that you can, can succeed at? And I think it might be a shift from mathematics to something completely, totally, and utterly different. Because, you know, we, we always go through this constant change. We're always changing our um, abilities. We're always learning new things. We're always forgetting, forgetting things that we used to do, and learning new things. And uh, and that's natural thing to do, whether you have a cognitive challenge or not. So I would be focusing on those things and thinking about, you know, what these are the things that I can do, and these are the things that I'm actually good at. Having said that, Laurie, there are ways through um, something called neuroplasticity and repetitive muscular activity that you can use to, to relearn some of the skills that you've lost. And if you want to contact me after the show, because uh, Laurie will give you my contact details, please do that and I will, I will speak to you about some of the uh, techniques and methods that we use to do that. And you may find that very, very helpful and beneficial. Hey, thank you. Great. Um, Tracy, is there anything um, that you want to add? I can't believe we're coming up on our hour here already. It goes so fast. Let's see. Has she fallen asleep? Oh, oh, let's try it again. Okay, we didn't. We couldn't hear you. We got muted. Oh, there. I'm sorry. Yesterday, um, I was able to get a copy of the National Plan to Address Alzheimer's Disease, the 2017 update that was released by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And in it, it was quite interesting. There was very, very little mention of young onset dementia. However, they did focus on learning disabilities and Down syndrome when they did when young onset dementia was mentioned. But in recommendation 14, section D, they have actually called for an amendment of the Older Americans Act 
to change it and provide services for all younger adults with dementia. So I think that's actually a positive. That's huge. That yeah. they started to recognize that dementia maybe is not just over the age of 65, but I, I think certainly that we have a long ways to go um, right now because there's about 5.3 million Americans over the age of 65 with Alzheimer's disease. Um, I think they're focusing their attention there. And unfortunately, people with young onset dementia are kind of left to the sidelines a little bit with regard to access to supports and services and even caregiver support groups that they need. Okay. Um, Tracy, can you mention that paper again, the, the so Alzheimer's it, Act? So it's the National Plan to Address Alzheimer's Disease. The 2017 update, I can, I can certainly send it to you. I have it on my Word document. It was released yesterday. I got a copy of it. Okay, that would be wonderful if you could. That would be absolutely great. Yeah, I, I had seen somebody put a link on uh, LinkedIn, and I didn't grab it, and, so, and I should have, I, <laughs> but I didn't. So, yeah, that would be wonderful if you could share that. Um, any last minute comments that you that you want to cover that we haven't covered, Tracy? Um, the only thing I would say is that um, certainly after completing Dan's course specifically on the uh, program for the young onset dementia, it does embrace everything that he's actually discussed on your show and supporting the family as well as the person with young onset dementia. And so certainly if anyone's interested in that program, they should contact him because it's, it is very, very interesting and very helpful. Okay, great. Dan, can you tell us a little bit about that program? Um, you know, how long is it? How do people sign up? Is it just for professionals or is it for family members as well? Yeah, I've, I've de I develop it so that anybody can do it. I mean, this program can be studied by individuals. It can be studied by professionals. It can be studied by caregivers. It can be studied by families. Um, and what it is, it's a program that is hosted on a website called successsanctuary.com. And people get access to the program. So it has different modules. It has PowerPoint presentations. It has um, the, the Young Onset one has some um, video of role play. There are exercises as group work. There are things that people can do, activities, exercises, all kinds of different things. And, um, and of course, the model is in there, the Nightingale Psychosocial Model of Support for someone living with young onset dementia. And um, it gives explanation as to how that works and how families and caregivers can fit that into it. So if anybody, as Tracy said, if anybody's interested in taking up this program, they can see it on our website, which is dementiatherapyspecialist.com. They can see the caregiver programs on there. Or just contact me direct and I'll talk to you about how it works and the costs and all that kind of stuff. But um, we've, got, we've got some people who are studying this program and they're 
benefiting from it immensely. So it's well worth doing. What I've done is taken all my tools from all my experience over the years and uh, and put them all together. And um, that's basically how the program came to be. Um, there's there's lots of issues at the moment, and I'm sure you may you know most people are familiar with it. There's a lot of issues around quality of care, especially in nursing homes, um, assisted living communities, and, and the like, where the quality of care is not as it should be, where training and development is not as it should be. And very close to my heart as a clinician is making sure that people who are working in the care sector, the people at the front end of the care sector at Coalface, and that can be family members or caregivers working in a facility, have the right understanding, the right level of training, knowledge, competence, competency and skills to support people to live well with, it, with their challenge. And that's all we can ask. You know, we want people to live their life not not stop their life not suffer not you know but live their life to their fullest just like everybody on this show is doing at this moment in time we're all living our life to the fullest and um, and that's what i want from the people that i'm supporting well so, yeah it's, um, it's a program that i would encourage people to look at Okay, great. And again, you can go to Dr. Dan's website, which is DementiaTherapySpecialist.com, or you can email him at Dr. and that's just Dr. Dan at DementiaTherapySpecialist.com. And you can reach Tracy Maxfields um, at her email, which is I am F is in Frank, I R I R. Um, Amazon Mary, I E R at Outlook.com. Um, or you can uh, read her columns at Dementia Aware Columnists. Um, and uh, that website is C A S T A N E T dot net. So Castanet dot net. Um, Again, I want to thank you both for uh, taking time. And, Lori, I always appreciate you co-hosting with me. You, you add so much. So I really do appreciate that very, very much. Yeah, can, Lori, can, can I just reiterate that if Lori contacts me, uh, I will talk to her about the things that I mentioned before, yep. about um, being able to relearn some of the skills that she's lost. Yep. yep. That thank you. Okay, cool. Wonderful. Um, again, for anyone who wants to join us on our dementia cruise, um, just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and you will find information about our November 11th to 18th uh, cruise and symposium. We would love to have you join us. It's going to be a lot of fun. Our uh, last show that we just did was on uh, self-care. We talked about stress, empathy, and sympathy with uh, uh, Dr. C. Uh, we also had on uh, information about twilight meditations with dementia with Dr. Jeff Bjork. And we also had another author on, Nancy Kreisman, who talked about meaningful connections when engaging. But all of our shows are archived, and there's over 400 of them that you can go listen to. If you go to alzheimerspeaks.com, you will also find information um, 
on our last video, which was the impact of humor and laughter with dementia as the disease progresses. I also want to uh, note that um, previous, uh, we, we also have a list of previous uh, chats that you can go to and you can find them all on our YouTube channel or our Dementia Chats tab at Alzheimer's Speaks. Uh, if you are in Massachusetts or Connecticut, I would love to see you. I'll be out there in October with Atera Senior Living. Uh, what else do I want to tell you? Let's see, I did an uh, interview with um, Christiane Cates, and we talked about simple ideas to shift your dementia care. And if you want to listen to that, you can just go to our blog. Again, all of everything we have, you can access through the main website, alzheimerspeaks.com. In wrapping up, I just want to give a shout out to the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. They have a new training program for brain therapy that they are launching um, in October. So that might be of interest to you. They take a holistic approach on everything that they do. So um, check them out. They're a, a really a wonderful company uh, to be able to deal with. Um, memory cafes, you can go to Memory Cafe Directory to find where a support group would be for you. Um, and it would be for a person with early to mid memory loss as well as uh, their care partner. Last, I'll just mention that we have some helpful tips you can download off our website. Again, just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and you'll see helpful tips. Click on that and you will be off and running. In the meantime, have a have a wonderful week and keep our memory chip in mind, which helps you switch your focus from tasks to uh, focusing on really being kind of that person-centered relationship aspect or engagement aspect. Are they safe? Are they happy? Are they pain-free? Thank you so much, everyone. Bye now. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the way showers who will help your journey a lot easier.